All right, so we're back for another episode of Unstandardized English. I am JPD Gerald.、Uh, this one is back to the topic of whiteness.、Um, Going to talk to my friend and a junior scholar who, nonetheless, has helped me a lot,、uh, Dr. Nicole Pettit, and her work is focused on language teachers because she is also, like me, a, a language scholar. And whiteness and white working class people, which I think is a really interesting thing to think about, because when I talk about all this stuff, most of the people I'm talking to are about. Um, talking about are basically white liberals from cities. That's my audience. That's who I've known.、Um, but. Uh, there are other people involved who may become language teachers in places where there aren't as many resources. So I want to hear what she has to say about a different group of white people.、And、that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's get to it then. Uh, all right, so folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am JPB Gerald, as you know, because I just said that a minute ago in the introduction. But、uh, we are here in this episode, episode two of season three, which I'm saying to Mark, so I understand where I am and I put these things together.、Uh, and I'm here with Dr. Nicole Pettit, and we're going to talk about some language teaching stuff, and we're also going to talk a little bit about whiteness, and we're going to talk a little bit about the working class, and how all that stuff comes together. So,、uh, Dr. Pettit, if you would like to introduce yourself and some of the things that you've done, that would be wonderful. Sure. So, right now, I'm an assistant professor at Youngstown State University in Northeast Ohio, and Youngstown is situated, for folks who aren't familiar, halfway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. And just a little bit east of Akron, about 45 minutes to an hour east of Akron. And、um, I am teaching in what is now the Department of English and World Languages. And my students right now primarily are future English language teaching professionals,、um, primarily in K 12 locally, but some folks are、um, getting ready to potentially go overseas. Um, or thinking, but sorry, <laughs> thinking about、um, you know maybe getting MA degrees and teaching in higher ed. And prior to this, I so I was I'm starting my fourth year as a faculty member here this fall. And prior to this, I did my PhD at Georgia State University in applied linguistics.、Um, and prior to that, I was in my hometown of the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And、um, taught English and Spanish there, and I didn't realize until today that you and I have in common that we both worked in community-based adult ed programs. And、um, if people, the things we're talking about today are fairly new to me because they arose as a result of my work here in Youngstown. And if people look up my work prior to this. Primarily, I've been working with racialized refugee background populations, and in particular in Minnesota, I worked with lots of folks,、um, students, and some coworkers who are originally from East Africa and Somalia, 
and I, I worked with a lot of students that had been denied access to schooling in their home countries. Um, and so I was looking at um, language learning and literacy practices for folks that were maybe doing those things, interacting maybe with alphabetic print literacy for the first time in their lives, although of course they had complex literacy practices that were not alphabetic print literacy based. So if people look at my previous work, they're gonna see that it's mostly related to that. It's funny because the, the article that I cited in, in the article that I presented on, um, the, what, I didn't bring, I didn't quote it in the presentation, but it's in the article itself. The, because there's not that much research done on, when I came into my doctorate, you know, you come in with what they say, a problem of practice, right? Yeah. And you know, what do you want to solve? And I don't know that I like that framing, but that's what it's called. And um, what I said, I wanted to address was I used to work for that community like uh, based language program. And as I mentioned in the presentation, um, a lot of people would leave. Now this is not unusual. And um, I said that I assumed that they had left for practical reasons and I'm sure some of them did, but the ones who left for practical reasons usually told me like they would send me an email or they would call me or they would pass the message along to somebody. Cause a lot of those, um, people who were from more impoverished backgrounds, they were, the, the nonprofit had a Head Start program. So they were often the mothers of the preschoolers, right? Or the grandmothers. Um, so that's where they, how, how they were sourced. Um, so my point is they were in the building anyway, so they might as well go to class. And if they couldn't come to class, they would stop by the class and say, can't come. Or they would tell the pre people in the preschool to tell me, so on and so forth. Very rarely, unless they were sick, would they simply just, um, if they had a logistical issue like a childcare or something, would they just not come? They would tell me and, you know, the information would come to me. So that was an incorrect assumption. I, I, don't worry, I have a point. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I assumed it was logistical, but then I realized it wasn't. And, and it, it, my problem in practice was to try to solve it. So there's a lot of community language programs around, but how can I make it so if mine was like pretty good at like 55% attendance at the end of a semester, so a session, whatever, um, I want it to be like 80%. And I, I don't know what the number was, just better. Yeah. And uh, I said, if I can solve this and then promote this at all these community language programs, I'll be a genius. Um, and as I looked at the literature, the, first of all, there just wasn't that many on why people left. Because if they left, they didn't tell people. Right. They're not there. <laughs> um, and also if their level of English is low, they, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I finally found this one study, which is now old because it's from 2008. And when I started my program in 2018, they said, try to use the last 10 years. So that was right on the cusp. It is now outside of the cusp. Um, and of course, that means the data in it's from earlier than that. Um, and basically what it found was that the white, although it wasn't mentioned, but it was there, teachers were assuming logistical reasons. And as in the article, I quote that they say like, oh, you know, she just had trouble breastfeeding, which I don't know what that has to do with class. Um, and then they actually found some of the students who'd left, like they, the program gave them all the contact information, whether it was phone or email, and this is their mid 2000s, so probably phone numbers of all the people who, who had stopped attending. And they called all of them and they got a certain amount of responses. And the responses they got said, no, the teachers assumed that I didn't know anything and I got annoyed, so I left. 
uh, you know, like that was the gist of it. Like, they, and then they, and then, interestingly about the study, they went back to the teachers and administrators and said, "Look at this." And the teacher said, "No, we worked so hard, you know, and which has nothing to do with." Oh, anybody. geez. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I mention all that, which seems to have nothing to do with what you said, because it took place in Minnesota. Um, oh. <laughs> and, yeah, and I found that there was a lot of re- research. The only research I could find on like community-based programs. English programs seem to be coming from either University of Minnesota or another Minnesota university like Mankato or something like that. Mankato. Um, Mankato. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, or Alberta, which is not in Minnesota, but it's up there. So, so like, <laughs> I mean, literally. I tell people like I'm almost Canadian. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, it was just interesting that the only, when I, when I was first in my first semester, I didn't know what I was doing doctoral study wise. And I was just looking, I didn't know how to use like, sci-hub and like get access to things I couldn't get access to so my whole first year I was finding literature that was not behind paywalls because I couldn't figure out how to use the library to get behind things so I was like but like I still did well like here's the thing I basically (laughs) did the whole first year with my hand tied behind my back you know for sourcing things right wow um anyway so yeah that's it's interesting that I wonder if it was the same program where you worked Um, I would have known because I was the director of that program during that period of time. Um, So they would have had to get IRB with me. But so no. Um, (laughs) But that's not to say that our program, you know, didn't have similar patterns, you know, so we definitely had, um, you know, the same kinds of things, you know, where students would stop coming and you wouldn't necessarily know why. We had a pretty well-developed system for trying to get a hold of people to we had multiple languages on staff of the students so our students primarily spoke Somali, Amharic, Oromo, Spanish Um, those were like the main the main couple and then we had some outside folks that would come in and um, and would make calls for us and so we would call people on the phone and we also had a van, so we'd provide transportation. And so our van driver, who spoke, I think, like seven or eight languages, you know, would stop at people's houses and just, or apartments and just sort of, you know, knock on the door like, hey, what's going on? Are you healthy? Are you okay? You know, is there anything that we can provide for you? Um, so it's been a long time, right? I left there in 2010. Um, and actually, in my last five, four years there, I wasn't in the direct, that director role anymore. So it's, it's kind of hard for me to remember what all the outcomes were. But I don't doubt that there were, you know, students that, that, and teachers that we had that kind of dynamic with. In our, in our situation, almost all of our teachers were volunteers as well, which is something you talked about earlier today. So yeah, we, did, we didn't have a system because it was, the system was me. Um, uh. <laughs> there was no, there was no van. I mean, we had a van for the, for, but not for that program. We had vans for like senior, it was also, I also ran, I, my, I, the department I ran for adult education did both the language classes and also technology classes for senior citizens. Okay. Um, you know, nonprofits. <laughs> um, yeah. and so, uh, but anyway, I mean, my expertise was the language teaching and I just happened to do that also. I mean, you know, I put on a resume, you know, but, um, so yeah, yeah, so that sort of, I, I came to understand in my teaching, like, my classes had better attendance, 
like mm -hmm. than the others. And in fact, it, it was like, not that I don't have any of it, but it was sort of a, 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 a refusal to be arrogant about that, that led me to this question. Because, you know, one could decide that my classes had better attendance because I'm just the best teacher, right? It could be, he's just the best, right? Um, and we're talking about a small, small sample size. There's not that many teachers or students, so I can't, you know, but my, my classes had like a robust attendance. Like people, people, if the people left there, they never left for that reason. They left because of logistical things, right? Mm -hmm. So they left because they were sick or, or they left the country or something like that, um, where they really couldn't attend. Um, and again, very rarely did they actually leave. They would, they would miss class here or there, but like by the end of class, like, the, basically, people, there was always a group of people who would come the first day and then never come again, and that happened no matter what the class was. But in my classes, whoever was there by class three was pretty much there by class. Uh, the classes were how many weeks long? Uh, the classes were ten weeks, so by class twenty, right, they were still there. Um, and again, I could think it's just me because I'm amazing. Then I said, no, I'm, I'm pretty much the only teacher who's not white. So I started to think about that. Yeah. And uh, I started thinking, what does that have to do with things? We didn't really talk about race, but the examples I would pull up of things were different, not because I was like, I hadn't done any of this studying yet. You know, I hadn't really thought about it because I hadn't, as I said in the presentation, um, I hadn't really learned this in my master's program. But but just naturally, people are inclined generally to do what they're more comfortable and familiar with. So if I did something that was related to music, I'm thinking about the music I listen to. If I did something that was related to movies, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that led me into that path. But now you are in a different place. I, I, um, I mean, you're still around white people, but it's a different kind of white people. Um, so, <laughs> so, so many white people. So yeah. Many. <laughs> And there, um, I can tell you, it's one of the parts of the country, and I don't literally just mean in terms of Ohio, but uh, a demographic that I know the least about. The mo what I mostly know about it is the, you know, cultural safaris that the New York Times did for three years after the 2016 election, talking about, like, who are these people? What yeah. happened? What are these people doing? <laughs> Right. You know, and then and there's just so many of them. There's so many articles. Right. And they, ne they never really did a good job. Right. The there were like they would get one level beneath the surface. They just asked them, why would you vote for him? Well, you know, I got left behind or whatever. And they never asked the second question is, why did you actually think that this man who lives in a gold castle would actually connect with you? Like, no, they never pushed him one step farther. <laughs> <laughs> because like, there, there is literature on that, right? These right, books yeah, exist, yeah. you know, the book White Working Class, the book White Rage, like these things exist. There is really intense examination of like, why someone would, and, and dying of whiteness is very good at that too, yes. you know? Um, but your students aren't dying yet. So, uh, Ooh, thank goodness. <laughs> so, you know, tell me about them. I mean, there's, they're college students, right? So they're, nice. they're, they're attend and, um, planning to be educators at some point. Um, you know, wh what are they like? So, um, before I tell you that, I want to just caveat all this with the fact that I'm not from Youngstown. Um, I grew up identifying and currently still identify much more with middle class, right, in terms of my own class identity. Um, 
and Youngstown being what you pointed to the work of Justin Guest, who wrote The White Working Class, and he talks about Youngstown and, and other cities that have experienced deindustrialization de the way that Youngstown has as post-traumatic cities. I would say that the cities that I've lived in in the United States have not experienced deindustrialization in the same ways. And so I definitely consider myself very much an outsider. So I'm once again, this you know middle-class, middle-aged, highly educated white lady who's talking about another population that I don't belong to, just the same as I was doing research with racialized refugees, right? Um, so I wanna be really clear about my outsider positionality. Um, so this is all my, um, my own experiences as a professor in this context. So when I came, when I came here, um, a new program was starting and that was that one of the teacher licensure programs here was requiring a TESOL endorsement. Um, starting in the fall when I started. And I was charged with coordinating that. Um, and it was, that program was forward thinking after losing over half of its population over the course of the last 50 years. Um, Youngstown was just starting to see some new arrivals, um, primarily from Puerto Rico, but from other parts of the world as well. And, um, and so there was a need for ELT professionals in the local schools, right? The schools were stating that there was a need and, um, and there are continued to be shortages of jobs locally. And so, you know, this, this makes a lot of sense. So, you know, and the, the, the folks that were involved in planning this are thinking, you know, presumably getting a dual license in an area where there's a need for teachers, you know, that's gonna be a good thing. So about, let's see, a year and a half, two years into the program, <laughs> I started getting reports on how many people that had been through the, the endorsement program were actually taking the state mandated exam in order to actually get the endorsement. And the numbers were so much lower than who was actually coming through the program. And just all of these question marks were going off in my brain because I went, okay, you, it, in Ohio, to get a licensure and endorsement, you need six courses. So it's not a small amount of coursework and 50 hours of field work. So not a tiny amount of field work either. And so you would go all the way through these six courses and get these 50 hours of field work. And then in the end, choose not to get this endorsement. What's going on, right? And so I, um, and you know that there are jobs and I would see, um, I would see teacher candidates in my classes, um, like this is the fifth higher education institution I've worked at and the fourth that I've taught at. I had a student affairs job at one point and it's the first place I've been where undergraduate students that I have observed anyway in my presence um, have such a high awareness of like what jobs are available, how much are they gonna pay, what are the retirement benefits, what are the health benefits, what are the dental benefits, what are the, you know, not just pension, but like long-term, short-term disability, like all of those pieces. And 
I actually saw students during a break and before and after classes on a couple of different occasions with their computers open, talking to each other, comparing these things at different institutions. And then I also heard them talk about their own financial precarity um, and, and, and larger than that, like broader social safety net precarity that goes along with the economic precarity, right? So like housing precarity goes along with that, health precarity goes along with that. So I hear all of this and I think you've got like this short path to a job and you choose not to take it. Like question mark, question mark, what's going on? And so that's what started me on the path that I'm on right now of trying to understand my students better. And I can tell you that I'm still very much on the beginning end of the learning. Do you have an idea as to why they aren't doing it? Well, a couple of things. Um, so I asked a couple of students early on. Um, and when I say early on, I mean like maybe the second semester in, um, you know, like, hey, what, you know, what's going on? Because we, we, the faculty in the program and I started um, sensing pushback from the outset. I pushed back to, before we even knew that people weren't taking the exam, we felt there was pushback to the content. Um, part of the Ohio TSL teacher standards includes taking up funds of knowledge. Um, perspective, that perspective, and I won't go into problematizing funds of knowledge. I have an upcoming publication related to that, so stay tuned. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> because it's part of the standard, it's something that we need to at least discuss in class. And there were some occasions where students would push back and say, you know, if we take up a, a funds of knowledge approach to curriculum design, um, you know, this could marginalize, you know, our white English speaking students, right? Um, it, like, and when I heard that, I just have to like be quite honest with you. Like it sort of took my breath away because I've been doing teacher development. You know, this is the third state and the fourth institution that I've done teacher development in. And I, it was the first time that I had, that I had heard anything like that from a teacher, right? And um, I won't tell you how I responded, but I got a white lashing on my end of semester evaluations for how I responded. <laughs> um, so, and, and there were other types of pushback too that were less overt. And so I asked one of the, um, one of the students who would be honest with me, um, and she said, well, you know, you know, some people have said that they don't want to, they, they just don't want to be that kind of a teacher. And I, and I just kind of went, well, at what point do we get to pick our students? Because <laughs> that doesn't really seem like it matches up. So um, now that more time has passed, I can tell you that part of the resistance was um, related to our own curriculum choices and our own framing of issues. You mean the um, school or the program or who's our in this case? The program, the okay. program. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Yep, yep. No, that, that's, that's great. Thank you. Um, and, and I have data to share with you on this. I love to share data. But what I, what I realized when I came on board was that, you know, the, the, um, the department that I work in had had like a linguistics minor 
and people can do a bachelor's degree in linguistics through a, an individualized study program. But they had a, a linguistics minor and you know, people would come through the linguistics minor and there was a methods course and a practicum course. And um, some people that took the methods in the practicum course, you know, were then positioned well to go on to like either maybe teaching overseas or, um, you know, going to a master's program to get an MAT saw like you did. Um, but the lower division linguistics courses were taught much more like traditional linguistics courses, right? And so, um, and fantastic syllabi, I've seen them all, like great texts, like kudos to all of my colleagues for the work that they did there. At the same time, like we need big courses from the very beginning to be speaking to, to issues of teaching in order to make the case to someone who, for whom ELT is brand new, they've never even thought of it before. Like this hasn't ever even been on their radar before. No idea this was even a license. No idea this was even a need. The, the speaking to the teaching aspect of thing needs, needs to be part of the discourse from, that, from the get-go. And, and so we've worked together to do that and to build that in. And now this fall, for example, I'm teaching the last course of the sequence. And because of the pandemic, we're not exactly sure how many fieldwork placements there are going to be. Even if like Youngstown City Schools, for example, is going to be online at the beginning of this, at least at the beginning of the semester. And we're still not sure if they will, um, you know, want online teach, you know, teacher candidates to help out online or not, or whether that would be too burdensome for them. And so, um, I, you know, I reached out thinking like, well, in the past, people haven't even really wanted to get the endorsement. So why bother them with the field work, which normally my course has 20 hours of field work in it. And so I reached out and I said, okay, here's a survey. I have 38 students in this course this semester. Actually, it's two sections of one course. And, um, and I said, if you don't want the field work, we'll do other things. You can do other things. I'll have two syllabi for this class. Um, tell me right now if you don't want the field work so we can prioritize people who really do want the endorsement. And um, like two thirds of the class, two thirds of the 38 students said that, that they wanted it, that they wanted the field work or that they weren't sure just because of safety issues, not because that they were rejecting TESOL. And so to me, that, I mean, that's much higher than it was even a year ago. And so to me, that's speaking to potentially some, like some of the changes that we have made earlier on are potentially having more of an effect. Um, so potentially. I mean, do you think that, are the, well, there's a lot to go all the way back to the marginalization yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that reminds me of what I was saying when I presented is that like, I tend not to use the word marginalized because I feel like it can very easily be co-opted to refer to people who are in any group. Yes. You know, it, yep. it, people use it to mean this, people were mean to me, you yes. know, mm -hmm. and uh, that's not what it means, but it, you know, it also reminds me of how people misuse the phrase micro or misunderstand the phrase microaggression. Like mm -hmm. that one, at least I understand because I under misunderstood it too because I thought it meant small. Doesn't right. mean small, it means interpersonal. Like right. micro means like microeconomics, 
right? In, in between people in a family, right? Um, whereas macro is like governments. Um, and they're saying that macro aggression is like the system of white supremacy, right? Or other systems. And microaggression is like you and me, people being mean to each other. That means, and it has nothing to do with how severe it is. It's just about the fact that it's in between a couple of people. So right. be, because of it being misunderstood, now people say, oh, you feel bad about microaggressions. It's like, no, it's all, it's not about small, uh, right? And I don't know. I feel like the battle <laughs> has been lost in a lot of ways. It's kind of like the whole Karen thing where now it's just being used as a substitute for the C word. And I'm like, that's not what it means. Um, <laughs> but what do you do? Like we, we can keep creating phrases that are just going to be co-opted by people who don't really want to listen. So is that the fault of the phrase or is that the fault of people who don't want to listen? Like what, when will we come up with the phrase that they will not take, which is my response to people using marginalization for a majoritized group that feels offended. Um, so that's my response to that part. Uh, and then as far as, I don't really know about like why you would do the work and then not complete it. I don't understand it. I know I have a friend who finished law school but didn't take the bar. And it seems like, I don't, I've never understood that, but just why would you go through that I don't understand because um, <laughs> because now he's not a lawyer so because um, you can't be uh, right. but what is the point of law school right anyway I make fun of him a lot on here but that's so he doesn't, he doesn't for, <laughs> for the students in in these classes um, TESOL was an add-on endorsement so they still had their main licensure um, and so um, they still were able to teach in their main licensure area or areas if they got other endorsements. So there was that piece to it. So they weren't rejecting the entire possibility of getting jobs. It was just the possibility of getting hired in this one specific area. Um, to your previous comment about, you know, groups that are, I can't remember your exact wording, but it's like- groups, group, that, groups that are majoritized using it to mean that people right. are to them. Right. Yeah. So like, I think, I think the work of, well, I think that Justin Guests, he has, he has another book that came out before the white working class, actually sitting right next to me. And he actually calls it the new minority, white working class politics in an age of immigration and inequality. And um, he, I feel like he explains how it is that that idea is constructed. Now, whether he makes a convincing um, argument that people can get on board with, um, you know, I think remains to be seen. I don't really recall that he's trying to make any specific argument that, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to speak out of turn because it's been a couple months since I read it and I don't remember <laughs> the details that clearly, but, um, I mean, yeah, I always, it, you know, it's hard with, with anything you try to define academically, because if you stay within academe and it stays perfectly defined as such, that's fine. But nobody's going to read it. Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody cares what we do. Uh, but if you, it's true, nobody cares. Nobody cares what we do. Um, but if you do what I'm trying to do and other people are trying to do and try to get more into the public, then once the public takes it, it's just going to become something else. And you have to make that 
decision, you know, are you okay with it being, you know, taken and, and run into a different direction? Because, you know, it's even like, because it, it reminds me of the debate over certain, certain books, which I actually talked about in presenting on like white fragility and other things. It's like, people are saying that everyone is now centering things that shouldn't be centered, but I don't even know that the books are saying that you should be doing that. So um, it's, uh, it's sort of a, it's like a devil's bargain, right? You know, if you want to be, like, if you want to be uh, prominent in the, in, in the public, you're going to have to expect that it's not going to stay within your control, which yeah. you could even use in a, like, death of the author way, you know, yeah. like film theory and all that nonsense. But, yeah. uh, so, you know, because when he, when I think, I haven't read The New Minority, when I think of that, I haven't read, is he, if he's arguing that it is a new minority, or if he's arguing that it's more, or, or would we understand it through our lens more as him saying a new minoritization? right yeah. the second one i think right yeah because if because you, you can see like that sounds like the new minority sounds like a freaking ben shapiro book but like <laughs> or something like that you know but uh you know but that's that so if you're on that side you could see the headline and be like someone who agrees with us but then it's not it's not what it's not what it's saying but on the other hand like if you write minoritization it's not gonna sell so, right right for sure for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I was most impressed with when I uh, came across this book is he, he does case studies of, um, you know, a place in East London and then of Youngstown. And he uses them as um, cases to exemplify, you know, what's going on currently, right, the, with the construction of white working class identities and then um, because he is in political science, he, you know, takes those findings and moves into the, into the political science realm to talk about, you know, politics, et cetera. And I just was really, really um, impressed because I, um, I find outside of this part of the country, when I tell people where I live now, that there are tend to be pretty big misunderstandings about the nature of the communities and what it's like politically. And there tends to be a pretty homogeneous narrative. And I was very impressed. He only spent three months here and his account is pretty much right on the head. And um, I've asked some folks that are from the area what they think of the book and they because of course my understanding as a you know, newcomer here to this area is limited. I have a handful of folks who are my people that I go to to ask my stupid questions um, when I'm not understanding things that are happening around me. And they have um, said that they, you know, that, that what he lays out resonates with them. Um, so, what do people misunderstand about the area? I mean, what I understand is is only I understand the indu deindustrialization. I understand, you know, the the blight and all of that that I see from the the news, I guess. And I've only really been to I mean, in the Midwest I've only been to cities and the cities c cities don't change that much. I mean, they change, but I'm saying in the sense of like 
you go to Chicago, you go to New York, you go to Cleveland, like there's parts of the cities that look different, but like when you're downtown, you're downtown, you right. know? So the in-between areas, the, the towns and suburbs and exurbs and whatever, those change from region to region. And I haven't been to any of the outside of city regions in, in, in I guess, Northern Appalachia or no, that's the more, well, Ohio River Valley, I guess where it is, but yeah. Yeah, we're kind of, I mean, Youngstown, um, and I would include, I would include Pittsburgh in this to an extent, we're kind of at this intersection where, you know, from the South Appalachia's coming up, and then from the East, it's, you know, East Coast, you know, upstate New York, that's coming, you know, at us from the East. And then from the West, it's, you know, Chicago, um, Indiana, those influences. Right. So it's kind of it's one of the things that makes Pittsburgh very interesting to study linguistically because it's all of these, you know, regions coming together. Um, but in terms of like what do people misunderstand? Um, I um, I think a lot of folks don't realize necessarily how much of the history of Youngstown is present in present day Youngstown and how much this steelworker identity, even though mills have been closed for many, or most mills, not all, but most mills have been closed for a long time, steelworker identities and um, cultures influence current thinking um, and ways of being. Um, and, and that there's more diversity of thought than than people realize, I think, like Youngstown itself tends to vote blue, um, in at least in part because of the strong labor history that's here, but also Youngstown uh, demographics have shifted quite a bit. And I live in Youngstown proper on the north side, and the, the city itself tends to be more racially diverse and I think predominantly black. Um, so that, you know, might be influencing the voting patterns. And I haven't been here long enough to dig into the voting patterns yet and how they, um, you know, fall across different demographics and things like that. But um, so, yeah, I mean, like, what, what does it look like? For me, this was sort of like a wake up call. What does it look like to live in a city that over the last 40 years lost more than half of its population and what does and and doesn't look like it's on its way to grow back <laughs> right like isn't on its way back up isn't like oh there was white flight and now everyone's coming back into the city no like the metro area itself is half a million youngstown proper dropped from 160 some thousand down to in 2018, 63-ish thousand, right? That's a, so that's a big difference. It's a very big difference, right? So there's all, there's a bunch of architectural infrastructure that is no longer needed, right? We have these roads, like there's a road just down the block from me that is four lanes and does not need to be four lanes and they're shrinking it, right? And they're gonna make um, like a bike paths and they're gonna put a median in the middle and make it more green. Right. And so what do you, how do you manage the shrinking um, and the, the loss, the losses that go along with the shrinking too. Right. So I live in a food desert. Um, 
my community, <laughs> you know, is in a food desert. Um, like, what does that mean for us? I have a much more difficult time here than I did when I lived in Atlanta or when I lived in Minneapolis, accessing organic, a wide variety of like organic, organic locally grown foods. I have a very small farmer's market with about four stands that I go to on Saturday mornings. Um, there's a farmer's market that rotates around town to try and address this food desert issue. Um, Cause this is the North side of Youngstown is not the only place in Youngstown that there's a food desert. Um, it's pretty much any of us who live in Youngstown proper need to drive at least 10 minutes to get to the larger grocery stores and some of our, um, you know, convenience stores that people tend to rely on when they live in food deserts have shut down. So we had a pharmacy that was walking distance from my place that was relied upon by students. There's um, a lot of older folks living in my neighborhood and a lot of folks that don't have cars living in my neighborhood because in my neighborhood, there's a lot that's walkable. And that, that pharmacy had to close down. Um, if they were using, they were eating from the pharmacy. What do you, there was food in the pharmacy? You mean like junk food or like, or, I mean, cause I'm just saying when I, people, pharmacies are different in different places. I'm not discrediting what you're saying. No, no, no. I understand. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. You mean like actually. a Dwayne Reed, like a Rite Aid, like a CVS? Yep. 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 So it was hard. There weren't tons of fresh foods there, but they had things like bananas and apples. And then there oh. was frozen foods that you could get and frozen meals. And because they were the closest walkable place for students as well, as well as a number of folks who lived in the area, um, you know, that didn't have cars and couldn't get to the larger grocery stores. So they knew their market, right? And they stocked according to their market. Yeah, that was a big loss. Just that one CVS was just a really big loss for the neighborhood. So to get back to language teaching, because I always get off sure. topic on these things. <laughs> I mean, how do you, you know, who tends to live there? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Great question. So um, Youngstown continues to be um, quite segregated um, along racial and ethnic group lines. And so um, we've got, I'm going to include in my little demographics, I'm going to include a couple of towns that are close that would be like considered suburbs of Youngstown. What's funny about Youngstown is that Youngstown proper is like only 62, 63,000 people and the suburbs around it are much bigger. So it's, it's kind of like what you, you, what we saw in larger cities back in the eighties, maybe when white flight happened. Right. Um, <clears throat> so what that means though, I have to say is that like my neighborhood is ripe for people coming in and buying the big, huge mansions that are in my neighborhood and um, having beautiful homes. Anyway, um, so See, my wife would like that, except that she wouldn't want the lack of organic food. She's a <laughs> vegan. It would be a problem. You know, th though there are a couple of community gardens that she could have a plot in for free because they're trying to promote community gardens that would be walkable from where you would live at that point. Well, we have so. a car now. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> well, you're welcome to come to Youngstown. And I have to tell you, to everyone who's listening, the cost of living is ridiculously low. So <laughs> there is that. 
Um, and the steel barons who, you know, were running the city for many, many years um, established some really great art museums. And so there are like arts here, not at the, to the extent that I would like, but you know, they exist. I'm not in a wasteland by any stretch of the imagination. So um, in terms of populations that are here, um, the language groups um, that I tend to report when folks ask me about this, like number one after English would be Spanish speaking and the largest group of Spanish speakers locally in Youngstown and in surrounding areas is from Puerto Rico. Um, second largest in terms of language groups would be Arabic speaking. This tends to be from Jordan, but also Syria and, you know, throughout the Arabic speaking world. And then the third largest is one that people don't guess very frequently, and that is Greek. Um, and so we have a fairly large Greek speaking population, especially in Camel schools, which is spelled actually like Campbell, like Campbell soups, but it's pronounced Camel. Um, and so that, um, that, although, you know, that like, in any of the schools locally, there might be, um, you know, students that are speaking Greek at home. Um, but it tends to be more in Camel. And that's where I got the administrators there asking me like, hey, you know, can you send us any teacher candidates that are bilingual Greek and English speaking? Um, and we've been able to do that a couple of times with them. And then I work with some um, more rural school districts that are, you know, farm country. And um, there are two teachers that I work closely with who have challenged my thinking a lot in terms of how we do ELT and um, culturally sustaining pedagogies and things like that. They um, are working with Amish youth and children um, who are speaking Pennsylvania Dutch at home and then English at school. And some of the strategies that I talk about, you know, when we're doing professional development or things like that, where we're talking about like, hey, is it possible to do a home visit? Is it possible to, um, you know, I don't know, like just incorporating students, home languages and home cultures. And those two teachers have pushed back against that a little bit, um, you know, stating that what they've experienced from students now, this is their testimony. So I'm reporting what's been reported to me, that, um, that they have received, that, that when, when they have tried to make those gestures, that that hasn't been something that their students or their students' parents have wanted. Um, so, and then also when, we, when the COVID-19 thing hit and folks were saying, okay, well, you know, make sure that um, emergent bilingual students are set up with Wi-Fi, make sure that they're set up with, you know, tablets, et cetera, et cetera, you know, this, the teachers that are teaching the Amish youth are saying, we need um, solutions that don't rely on electricity, right? Um, and so I've needed to think outside of the box a little bit in supporting them in their work. What do they do? And now we're off the top of your language, but I mean, like, <laughs> what do they do for the Amish students? Um, during COVID-19? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I came up with sort of a list of things that were not electricity required and they were things that I 
researched on the internet. Very few of them were things that I came up with on my own. Um, but there was a resource out of North Carolina, and I would be happy to share links with you um, if you're interested. That was, and folks might have seen this already if they're, you know, in ELT, that was like, I don't remember how many days, it was like a calendar of every day there was a different language or literacy activity that emergent bilingual kids could do um, that was related to some sort of content area. And this was a document that got ended up getting translated into, I don't know, like a dozen languages or more. Um, and it's on their website. Um, I encouraged them to think about um, how they could connect to content. And so one of the content things that came up was related to, there was a, you know, a science thing. And so I said, you know, can you write out instructions for them? Just write it out. Can you send things to them in the mail or can you drop things off, right? Instead of emailing. Um, I encouraged them just to write letters back and forth. Um, what else did I do? Um, I encouraged them to um, consider if they had students that were at more beginning levels that weren't as comfortable writing, I encouraged them to, you know, if you can drop off supplies, um, can they convey what they know in non-linguistic ways? Would a collage work with them, you know, writing down just key words of what the collage means to them connected to the content? Um, let's see what else. Well, I mean, not to cut you off, but I, I think that the innovation here is 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 showing that, and and now I'm going to get to my main point that there is no excuse when people say they can't come up with ways to decenter whiteness in language teaching. See, I segue you um, because if I say you need to find different materials that center different groups of people in different languages and 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 um, push against the un the unmentioned white listener, people say, "Well, Justin, what do I do? What do I do? I can't figure it out. Tell me what to do. What do I do? What do I do right now? You didn't tell me what to do, so I'm not going to do it." Um, and it's just lazy. So, yeah. you know, uh, if people can come up with ways to teach language learners who, are, who can't use electricity, not just because they don't have it, but because it's not something that they are part of their values, like, there is going to be, like, if you can do that, then yes. you can teach a kid, and it, you know, I'm yes. talking about a regular scenario, but even you can do it online, you can teach a kid in a way that doesn't center whiteness, you know, yes. and... Uh, and the thing about when I say not centering whiteness, um, I think I don't. What people who are very fragile about it think is that you have to start like quoting Malcolm X in every class. <laughs> um, I mean that's fine. That I mean they just you know be interesting to learn for like writing purposes. But like you know, or like people say, well, how will they learn? How will they learn the grammar? How will they do it? Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, I don't know, man. Let's put it this way. Some of the best, some of the most like just amazing English speakers in terms of their, the words they were choosing and the, and the creativity they, they, they had in English were these kids I met when I was in Cambodia and they were trying to sell me things. Like they did not learn that in school. They figured it out, you know, yep. Yep. <laughs> and like, I don't even know if they had, if they had a chance to go to school, but they were there at the temple on a weekday. So probably they should, well, I guess it was summer. They could have not been in school, um, you know, trying to sell me Coca-Cola. 
and I'm not saying this to do like a poverty porn thing. My point is like, you can figure it out. You just, yeah. you're uncomfortable with what, what, what might happen. Yes. And, you yes. know, tying that to some of the, the things when you bring up, if you talk about race or anything like that and they get uncomfortable, I mean, how do you deal with, with that? I mean, I know that you're, you know, you know, late breaking into, into this thing that I've been dragging you along with in the last several months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the people, you know, Nicole, for the listeners, one of the people I've just sort of been dragging into confronting whiteness. It's like one of the things that I do. I just drag people like that. But, um, <laughs> you know, you notice that these things, they're uncomfortable for people, but they can do it. It can be done. So how yeah. do you people, I don't mean me, I know what I do. And I talk to people who are already interested and need help getting there. Yeah. I think it's white teachers' jobs to work with white people who are resistant. So 100%. how do you do that? 100%, 100%. Yeah. Are you asking me how do you do that? Or is it a rhetorical question? Well, it's, it's kind of both. <laughs> you know, how, how do you do it? And how does one do it? Yeah. So I think um, I would say that, like, historically, I've done it poorly. Um, And I, along with a lot of other people, um, kind of went, "Uh uh-oh, crap, I've been doing this poorly, you know? Like, it's time to wake up. It's and not just, not just wake up, but like, it's time to act differently, right? It's time to take different actions and it's beyond time, right? It's way past time. This, you know, the revision of my syllabi and the discourse in the classroom and all those kinds of things. Like I've been very overt about, you know, immigration issues and how they impact students about um, culturally sustaining pedagogies, right? Without saying white supremacy without saying racism, right? And and I still got the white lashings. <laughs> so this fall is going to be real interesting because, because now the syllabi are completely different. Um, and the, the videos and the readings and all of it is, is different. Um, so how do you do it? I mean, I, I guess I would say ask me again in January because this fall is for me, going to be a completely new project um, in terms of asking students that have resisted much more low-key discourse, asking them to engage at a much more high-stakes level. And so I've been spending a lot of time um, reading and going to PDs online from Black scholars in education who do this work to see if I get good models and I'm doing the ESL project and I'm so excited. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't well, have any good answers yet. Well, but what I noticed, maybe it's because I'm actually black, but what I noticed is that I spent my whole life and I'm, I'm, I should really more say my adult life, my career, um, being aware of, of race issues and thinking about them and not too much thinking about them in res- with respect to my peers, right? Unless somebody was out overtly cruel to me, I, I was in that same like, oh, it's all interpersonal cruelty. 
or it's systemic, but I never did the thing that has made this all click for me is bring the individual cruelty and the systemic issues together because I think that that's a problem. Some people think it's individual, most do. We're getting to a point where some people understand that it's systemic, Mm -hmm. but they don't quite figure out that the two, like it's all together, right? It's like people being mean to each other as part of a system. Right, right, right. You know? Right. So, because people, you know, when I've been talking about the pandemic pods and all this stuff, people are always responding by saying like, it's a systemic issue. And I'm like, you don't really know what that, like, who do you, th- who is the system? It's not <laughs> right. just, it's not magic, right? right. You know? Um, yeah. yeah. And it's the same way that I feel about like, there's going to be a second wave. I'm like, if we do certain things, like it's not going to fall out of the sky. But anyway, um, so I used to, touch lightly on racial and like when I first started like trying to look at race in, in English language teaching I would talk about it subtly I'd tiptoe around it I yeah. would talk about multiculturalism mm-hmm. you know when I talk about like you know things like that you know and or you know like socioeconomic you know all the things that they say without saying it right and I would say and I would I would toe the line not because I was try- I was afraid, but because that's what people were doing. And here's the thing, probably because I was black, they still thought I was talking about race and they got mad anyway. Right. So I realized, well, I might as well just, just say what I'm going to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> and in, in fact, people push back against me a hell of a lot less often now. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And I do think it might be because I'm actually black and I can't, I can't know. Like that would be an interesting study because one of the things that one of the reasons that I'm like my actual empirical research of which I have none published, but uh, is going to be about the ESO project and so forth is because what I really want is to understand what white people say to each other about race when they're not in a research study, (laughs) you know, because there's studies on white people talking about race and racism, right? But there are studies. (laughs) so like Mm -hmm. they're still even if they're saying racist stuff it's still what they want the researcher to hear to some extent Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying it's still a certain context Mm -hmm. um and i'm saying like what are you all saying to each other when your guard is down and we're not there and it's not and it's also not a research context that's what i want to know but i can't figure it out because i can never be there so like it just i can't i can't know that um I have found in the initial stages of the ESO project that almost everybody who's been in the class so far, when they do one of the initial assignments, which is a racial autobiography, they reveal to me that they had some like overtly racist relative. And Mm. I'm finding that like, as a kid, you know, I, I knew people who, whose racism was usually not very overt. Like I look back and they were racist, but they weren't shouting slurs at me. You know, they, they, they said things where I'm like looking back like, oh, but uh, at the time I didn't, I wasn't really offended because I just didn't, I didn't know better. I was trying to, I wanted them to be my friend or whatever, whatever. Um, but then I look back and I'm like, they were like watching Fox News. I'm just like, oh, um, and <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so there's that, but again, they weren't cruel and I realized that what they were often saying to me was trying to get me to justify some of the negative things they thought. But what I'm realizing is that a lot of those, those people, because they knew me and because they went to a progressive school, 
they knew you couldn't be saying that stuff. Right. I don't know that they would have, but they also knew that in polite society, you do not say these things. Right. Um, Which is why I write about, you know, polite society or good good white people, right? You know, the so-called good white people and what they do. Um, But I think a lot of them had a racist uncle or dad or, or cousin or something like that who came over occasionally. And I think what happens is their parents, unless their parents were the the openly racist ones, which might have happened, uh, but someone in their family said, well, we don't do things the way that that. grandma does things. You know, it's from a different time. Everyone is equal. And I think, and I brought this up a lot um, recently because I just found it fascinating. I think that that both helps and harms people because unless, I mean, you can be swayed by it, but I'm not talking about people who are swayed by it. I'm talking about people who see that it's bad to be shouting, you know, slurs, right? They see that and they're like, bad, don't do that, right? Um, And I think it really causes a problem because you can either say to yourself, I'm going to ignore this, which is a problem, or you can say to yourself, I'm not going to be like that. But not being like grandma who's shouting slurs it's not the same as being anti-racist. It's That's just right. being better than an open racist. Right, right. And I, I think like you and I talked about before once, I think you were asking me, uh, you know, some questions about, you know, white identity development and what that looked like for me. And and I mentioned, you know, like one of the things that um, that I needed to do and that I continue to, that I continue to look for are um, role models. Right. So like, what does it look like to be, you know, a white middle class Midwestern, uh, you know, highly educated white lady <laughs> that's anti-racist, you know? And um, because I definitely came from a family that was, you know, like, these aren't the things that we say. I can't point to any family members that were overtly racist or used slurs. Maybe that existed and I just don't recall um, but I definitely remember growing up and being like, you know, this is what's appropriate. This is what's not appropriate. I didn't, gr- um, I don't remember messages related to colorblindness. That was actually part of the broader discourse of the early nineties, which is when I was an undergrad. So I'm giving away the fact that I'm a Gen Xer right now. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so in the early nineties, that colorblindness piece was part of broader discourse, but yeah, I mean, the, the white, um, white anti-racist role models uh, has been and continues to be a uh, piece of the puzzle for me. You know, I thought um, originally before I started doing the ESL project that I was going to try to generate some, you know, because I interviewed some people who were white language teachers who were working against racism in their work. And that was cool. Um, and one of the things that I noticed is that they're not much of, you know, you, you're not really supposed to promote yourself if you do these things, you know, you're just supposed to do it. (laughs) Uh, so it's hard to find, because if you're out there talking about how good you are at anti-racism, you're not, not really... doesn't work that way um yeah I mean you saw you saw one of the chapters I wrote about it but like you know it's just like you you can't 
you can't really self-apply the title. Correct. Similar to ally or anything like that. Like you can't say, you can say, I, you can always say I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to be more anti-racist. I'm trying to be more successful anti-racism, but you can't say I did it. I anti-ed racism, you know, (laughs) it's all, I just anti-ed all of it. Um, And it's finished. Right. Um, And I think that, well, you'll see what happens. And I am curious to see what happens with your students this semester because how they'll react to, you know, a white lady challenging them or not even challenging them, but just giving them different information, different perspective on race and racism in their field that they don't, like, it's not a race class, you know? So I wonder if they'll be blindsided by the fact that you're talking about this, you know, where they'll think, oh, she just, one of those people who got, uh, you know, um, hoodwinked by the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, we need to get her out of here um, or something like, I don't know. I'm just making up straw man. No, I, no, that's, that's actually, um, that sort of happened in one of my classes. I, I, the dynamic tends to be that most students aren't, um, here in the classes that I've taught anyway. And keep in mind that this isn't reflective of the entire university. It's reflective of a specific licensure area that I've been working with. Um, that um, during class, my students wouldn't speak back during class. Um, If they had honest questions, they would bring up honest questions. So, you know, sort of like quick rabbit trail when you asked like, what are white people saying about race when we're not around? So I've had classrooms that are entirely white students um, here. And occasionally what comes up is they'll tell me stories of things that happened in field work and then they'll ask me whether what happened that somebody else did was a racist act or act, ask whether what they did was a racist was racist and so there's kind of this like awareness of like I don't want to be that person right but I'm not really sure what quote-unquote that person means right and so they're looking for like um I don't know direction like they're you know, the whole idea that like there's right and wrong answers all the time is, is like, you know, something people are looking for. And there's not always, it's not always comforting that there aren't always right and wrong answers. Well, I think that that goes along with the, with the main idea of being a good white person is, right. is more about yeah. being not racist. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, whatever I do, I better not be classified as racist because that right. is the worst thing. Um, yeah. And to have been called racist is like people think that is as as uh as damaging as an actual slur or something like that right um and you know i don't know it's uh it's a challenge so it is it's, but i they um so i i had in a class right um where no one said anything during the semester, well, in more than one class, (laughs) no one said anything during the semester. And then at the end of the semester, there were a handful of, not all, but, you know, enough evaluations to, for me to go, huh, this is interesting. You know, where people might say like, oh, like stay in your lane or things like that, right? Like this isn't a class about racism or multiculturalism or whatever this is an you know an English teaching class and it's kind of like hmm so how do those things go together (laughs) where would multicultural anyway I know I know I get it I'm completely there 
but what that tells me is that I didn't lay the proper groundwork, right? And so... Um, oh, so because they're worried about it coming out of nowhere. Right. And so because I know this, right, I've already started laying some groundwork for this fall. So um, I wanted to reach out to, because I know that students are, you know, there's a lot of anxiety right now um, about, you know, going back to school. My class is going to be online. My classes are going to be online, but not all classes are going to be online at my university. It's course by course. Um, <clears throat> but I'm working with teacher candidates that potentially are going to go out into the K-12 schools. And we do have K-12 schools that are meeting face-to-face -face here locally, right? And so there's, there's some, you know, anxiety about that. And there's just a lot of unknown in general. And, and so it's, it's just a time when, in general, you know, at least in my community, there's sort of like this heightened state of hypervigilance. And so one of the ways I wanted to sort of counteract that a little bit and slow us down a little bit was to reach out earlier than I normally would and send them a video where I'm talking fairly slowly <laughs> and where I'm being um, acknowledging the grief, acknowledging sorrow, acknowledging loss, acknowledging the fact that we're human beings before we're students, before we're teachers, and trying to humanize our you know, experience a little bit, even though we're all going to be online. And then um, also letting them know, like, we're going to take up, like, one of the teacher standards we're taking up this semester is a teacher standard that is related to um, developing anti-bias and anti-oppressive, anti-oppression um, curricula. That, those are the exact words in the standard. So the standard doesn't actually say racism, but racism falls on in, within those, and that's the argument I'm going to make. And so I, I didn't say racism, I didn't say anti-bias, I didn't say anti-oppression, I didn't say any of those words. I just said, we're gonna be taking up conversations that some of you have told me in the past have been difficult for you. I'm not gonna say these are hard conversations. That is a social construction. These are, these are difficult, that's, that's, you know, that's not an objective statement by any stretch of the imagination. I wanted to say what has been reflected back to me, reflect that back to them, right? And so I've laid a little bit of groundwork for them and I asked them to do some asynchronous collaboration before class related to um, you know, what they needed from their classmates and what they needed from me and what they, could, what they thought that they could bring to conversations that they um, had already expressed in the past were difficult for them. So I've laid some groundwork and um, and I'm, I'm um, getting some feedback from some colleagues in other disciplines that um, talk about race more frequently, like a colleague in sociology and um, where else am I reaching out? I can't remember, but I've got some sounding boards for what I'm developing sort of put a pin in and I think that's a really interesting place to sort of wrap up when you talk about the social construction of a difficult conversation mm -hmm. because I think one of the things I want to show people is people say it's hard to talk about race um I mean it's hard if you've never done it before, but right. it's not harder than other things. Right. Like everything is hard to talk about if you've never done it before. So what's hard about it is that you've never done it before. Right. 
um, you know, it would be hard for me to talk about, and I could just list like the culture of any country that I don't know very much about because I don't know anything about it. Yeah. The difference with that and race is that you do know something about it. You just don't really have the language to express it a certain way. And that's, I think, what people are reacting to. It's not just that they haven't done it. It's that they both haven't done it, but yet it's been all around them all this time. So they mm -hmm. find it a little bit difficult to parse out what they've experienced from what they're learning. You know, unlike learning, let's say you're learning a new language, you may not have heard that language. I mean, I'm not talking about like English now. I'm talking about if you're learning, uh, you say, I want to study Mandarin and you don't live in an area where people speak Mandarin you probably haven't heard very much of it, you know, unless you're watching movies that it's in or something like that or music. And so, you know, it's not something where you're comparing it to your experiences or your feelings about it or oh, all this time that I've been around, surrounded by Mandarin and I haven't understood, you know, it, honestly race in terms of the literacy involved, it, it is a language in terms of what to say and so forth. That's why in the presentation I went over some of the things that I think are important to establish about it. But it's not more difficult than everything else. Like, mm -hmm. you know, people, everybody has people, these people complain about identity politics, but we all have identities. People have words for, to express their identity. They do, they have them, right? So yeah. if we're talking, and this is teaching, if we're mostly talking about women, right? They have ways of understanding their gender, right? Mm -hmm. um, they can put words to that. And so if you could take the time to put words to that, you can take the time to put words to your race, which is something too. Yeah. Um, so I do think it's important to point out that the conversations are difficult because of your lack of experience, not because the topic yep. is so amazingly hard. Um, another, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. And then no, I want to add something when you're No, that's yeah, fine. <laughs> I was going to say there's, there's another layer sometimes. Um, and I think Janet Helms talks about this. I actually have, her stuff sitting right next to me too. Um, yeah, in Janet Helms's um, A Race is a Nice Thing to Have. Yeah, I've read that. She yeah. talks about that a little bit. I love it just because she's so clear and concise. Um, that there's the layer of some people have received the message that it's a taboo topic, right? So that that makes, you know, like, oh, we're not gonna, you know, I don't know. Like if, if something is, if you're not used to talking about something, plus you've somehow received a message that it's a taboo topic, which is just ridiculous, but it happens, right? Then that can add to the anxiety, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way that people say you don't discuss. Well, I think saying something is a taboo topic really just keeps you know, supremacy in place. That's where these things Absolutely. come from. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. it's the same thing like saying you don't discuss your salary. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you need to do that, but I generally speaking, it's the people with more who are saying, we don't, yep. we don't discuss the salary. It's like, because we don't want to know how much the man you're making. Yeah. Uh, yep. Um, so yep. when people with power say, we don't need to talk about race. And then it means that when people who are racialized and racially oppressed talk about race, they can say, why are you so obsessed with race? Why do you have to make everything about race? Uh, I mean, that's like something that I've been told a lot. Why do you have to make everything about race? And it's like, because you won't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's that silencing, that control, right? That yeah. stay in your lane, the white lashing on the, and I'm not just talking about me, like the white lashings that I get on my end of semester evaluations, 
I'm certain are far less than my racialized colleagues. Um, so that, you know, like I want to, you know, you know, dampen it down, silence, uh, don't want to hear from you. All of that is, is tools of white supremacy for sure. Right. You know, that, yeah, that whiteness, I mean, sorry, that silence. Um, it, it's, it's an overwhelming silence. You know what I'm saying? It's like a yep. silence that drowns everything out. Yep. Um, yep. And I think one of the reasons that, um, I mean, it sort of reminds me of, I mean, like I said, it is like a language because it reminds me, and this is silly, but I do have to sign off in a minute, of when I first went to Korea. And one of the things they taught us in the, the orientation, we had, we're in a whole big, big hotel for a week. And there's like 200 of us, which I'm sure was fun for the hotel people. Um, and, you know, we're there just being obnoxious English speakers. But one of the things they taught us was they taught us the alphabet, the Korean alphabet, um, or Hangul. And it's actually pretty simple. It only has 18 characters. Um, and it's phonetic, except for one or two characters. So in the sense that no matter where you put a certain character, it's going to sound that way. Uh, and what happens at that point is you leave the hotel and all of a sudden, all of these characters sort of make a little bit of sense to you. And now when you're learning a language, it's, it's exciting. So you walk around and you're saying, you're just reading things out and, you're, and I'm just like, hamburger, because hamburger in Korean is hamburger. Um, and you're like, computer, ah, I understand this now. And you see it and it's everywhere. And it's, you know, it's really fascinating, but it's the same thing with, with anything that's like a social justice issue. And I kind of hate that phrase, but I don't know what to call all of it put together. Uh, you start to learn a little bit of it and it's everywhere all of a sudden. But the problem is because it's been shown to be taboo or because of the pain associated with it for many people, instead of being like, oh my God, it's everywhere. This is amazing. It's, oh my God, it's everywhere and I can't get away from it. And it's much easier to just go back to silence and not talk about it, even though once you've been exposed to it, it's very hard not to see, see where it is. Yep. So, Nicole, thank you for joining me on this episode. Uh, it'll be up at some point in September. And uh, you have anything else you want to share before we sign off? No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, by the time this goes up, you'll be in that semester. So, uh, you know, if you're still alive, by the time the episode comes out, uh, then that would be great. And I'm curious, and maybe you come back in like January and tell me how it went. Yeah, I'm going to be keeping a teacher journal and reflecting with colleagues and stuff. So, yeah, I'd be happy to come back. All right. You... Have a good evening, and hopefully all of the listeners found this a valuable conversation to take in. <laughs>